This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. I'm going to hand over to Jim at that point, who's uh, going to open God's word to us. Right, thank you. Fantastic, good. Uh, Shall we pray, friends, once again as we open God's word? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a speaking God, not a God who's silent and distant, but a God who uh, has spoken uh, to us so that we might know you. And we pray you would speak now and we might listen as your spirit helps us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, we all love stories. They're deeply important to us as humans. We love engaging with stories on TV or in films and in books. That's why 50 million of us have signed up for the Disney Plus subscription service to help us get through lockdown. We love hearing stories on social media. Think about how much you viewed this past week on Facebook, Instagram and Snapchat has been stories, trivial stories like what someone is having for lunch that day, or more profound stories about job interviews, family tragedies or personal joys. We tell ourselves and others stories all the time, stories to help us make sense of our world, stories to help us understand who and why and where we are. Stories that enable us to navigate the complexity of life. 
Well, the great news is that God loves stories too. And he tells us the greatest story in the world. A story that isn't made up, but actually happened. You see, in the Bible, we have God's true, authoritative and beautiful story about his work in his world. A true story that all the other stories borrow from. An authoritative story that makes sense of all the other stories. A beautiful story that we can find our place within as God invites us to be part of the story that he is telling. It's a story of what God is doing in his world. It starts with him creating the world and it ends up with him recreating the world. It's a story that starts in a garden and ends in a city. It's a story that spans centuries, embraces different cultures and contains a huge character list. But it is a story with one ultimate hero and author, the triune God himself. And one overarching plotline, how God is restoring his broken creation. With one crucial turning point at the center of the story where the author writes himself into the story in the person of his son to establish his rule in a new way. And that's why the Old Testament is really important for us as Christians. The Old Testament isn't irrelevant or detached or unimportant. Know that the stories in the Old Testament show us God at work. He is the ultimate hero of every story above every human character. Those stories are about him. The Old Testament stories aren't there primarily to teach us morals. They're there to show us our God. These Old Testament stories show us God at work, displaying grace, executing judgment, keeping his promises, which reminds us that the God we meet in the New Testament is the same as the God we meet in the Old Testament. As we read those Old Testament stories, we see God preparing the world for the coming of Jesus. We see God teaching people the fundamental outlines of his rescue in a partial form that would be fulfilled and developed and coloured in by Jesus when he arrives on the scene. And of course, we do encounter examples of faithful human response to that rescue uh, along the way. So the Old Testament is for us today. It is our spiritual heritage. Its story is our story in a deep and profound way. And over the next few Sundays, we're going to look at some of the early highlights of God's true authoritative and beautiful story from the Old Testament, where God calls into being the people of Israel and calls them his treasured possession, where he binds himself to them in covenant, where he makes serious promises to commit to his people and calls them to love and loyalty in response. We'll see Israel receiving amazing promises through God's covenants experiencing life under God's sovereign hand and ending up in slavery far from their home, needing to be redeemed and rescued 
and we'll see God acting in gracious, faithful commitment to his covenant promises to liberate his people from slavery so that they might serve him in freedom and then keep his commandments. Commandments that express God's expectations for human life so that we might please him and flourish. I trust that's a story that we want to learn from and are interested in today because it's a story that will help us live our lives today for his glory. Well, friends, today we're picking up God's story in Genesis chapter 12 that Peter and Claire read for us. You may remember that at the tail end of last year, we worked through Genesis 1 to 11 and we left things on a bit of a cliffhanger. You see, in Genesis 1 to 11, we saw a repeated pattern of sin leading to judgment, which was followed by grace. Sin, judgment, grace. But in chapter 11, the pattern is disrupted. There is sin. The people of the time defy God. We see judgment. God confuses the language of the people so they can't band together anymore. But there's no grace. See, the grace doesn't come until chapter 12. But in Genesis chapter 12, God graciously and sovereignly pushes forward his plan to renew his broken world. And this grace crystallizes around the covenant promises that God makes to a man called Abraham, later called Abraham. But these promises aren't just a matter of ancient history. Now, these promises give backbone to the story of God's purposes for his world. And they're promises that have implications for us today. They include and involve us. You see, we still believe in a God who makes covenant promises. And we need help to keep trusting that God can keep his promises. We need encouragement that God is faithful and can be relied on. Maybe especially in these difficult days. So friends, as we look at the promises God made to Abe, we can be encouraged that God keeps his promises. We can be challenged to keep on trusting God as we live with him in the new covenant. We can be persuaded again today that God is faithful and can be relied on. That's what I need to hear. That's what you need to hear. So we're going to work through the promises that God makes to Abe in Genesis 12. And we're going to see there are three overlapping promises. The first promise is all about people. The first promise is all about people. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, what God promises there. I will make you into a great nation. God promises Abe children, descendants, numerous offspring. In fact, as numerous as the sand on the shore or the stars in the sky. Now, we can't get to the beach uh, at the moment, but try this when you get home this evening. Go out to your garden when it's dark and try and count the stars in the sky. You can't do it. It's impossible. There are just too many. 
So it is here when God promises people to Abraham. But there are two immediate problems. Problems number one, Abe has no children yet. Chapter 11, verse 30 tells us that his wife Sarai is childless and is not able to conceive. Problem number two, these promises from God come to Abe when he's about 75. That's hardly a promising age to begin to think about changing nappies. Surely if Abraham and Sarai are going to go and visit the maternity ward, it must be to see another baby, not to have one of their own, surely. It's laughable that these two can have a child, that God's promises can come to pass. And both Abraham and Sarai do laugh. But that is precisely the point. See, God promises here something that's humanly impossible, not just unlikely. See, if these promises are going to come to pass, it must be a miracle, something that only God can do. But God is deadly serious about this promise of people. A few chapters on in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a solemn covenant, a binding promise, an agreement with Abe that he will have children. In chapter 15, God says these words, a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. It's clear. Look up at the sky and count the stars, God says. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. And despite Abe and Sarai taking matters into their own hands, making a mess of things in Genesis 16, if you know the story, despite several decades of waiting, eventually God's promise is fulfilled. And we read in Genesis 21, the Lord was gracious to Sarah. She's had her name changed from Sarai to Sarah, just as Abraham's names changed from Abraham to Abraham by now. The Lord was gracious to her. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. Isaac means he laughs, an ironic reference to their lack of faith. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And it is through Isaac, this promised miracle child, that God's promises will advance. So at the end of Abe's life, God's promises are in motion, albeit on a small scale. But this guarantees their full, final realisation. God promises Abe people. That's the first aspect of God's promise to Abe, a promise about people. And this promise of people is partially fulfilled in the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Abraham's family grows from being this small unit to be uh, the people of Israel, God's people, a huge community under the loving rule of the God who rescues, promises and sustains them. 
But this promise about people is ultimately fulfilled in the people of God today, in the church of Jesus Christ. You see, still today, God is keeping his promise when people become Christians, when they're joined to Jesus, and then added to God's growing international, multicultural and multiracial family. God is keeping his promises to Abe today as he grows his church. So friends, ultimately, what is one way we know that God keeps his promises? Look around at the different faces on your screen this afternoon. We are the proof. You are the proof that God keeps his promises. We are the fruit of what God promised to Abe all those years ago. See, God is faithful to his promises. He's kept them in the past. He'll keep them today. And we can trust him to keep them all the way through history until the end of all things. So Abraham is our spiritual forefather. He's our ancestor in the faith. The Apostle Paul in Romans 4 speaks about how Abraham is the father of all who believe, whether from a Jewish background or from a non-Jewish background. Everyone, in other words, who becomes a Christian has Abraham as their father. So we are in Abraham's family. We're part of his people. We're saved by the same faith he had. We believe in the same God that he did, the God who promised his grace and shows commitment in covenant to his people. And friends, that, that means just very simply that we are not rootless in our culture. We are not lacking identity. We should not be unsure of our place in the world. See, all around us, people feel that way. And yes, it does often feel that we don't belong. It does often feel that we're insignificant in the grand scheme of things. It does often feel that we have to carve our way out in a cold, indifferent universe. But that is not the case. We are part of Abraham's family. We are the fulfillment of the covenant-keeping work of the promise-making God. God's promise of people. That's the first aspect of the promise to Abraham, the promise of people. The second aspect of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, though, concerns place. We've had people, now place. You can see the development, can't you? Connected to the promise of people is a promise about a place for those people to live in. And Genesis 12, verse 1, opens by telling us that the Lord had already said to Abraham, go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then in verse 7 of chapter 12, God promises to your offspring, I will give this land, that is the, the land of Canaan. So God promises Abe a place to live in, a land. But again, there's a problem. Abraham is a foreigner in Canaan. He's a, a wandering pilgrim, someone without permanent residence. He's a religious migrant. 
And along the way, Abe makes mistakes. He ends up leaving the land later on in Genesis 12 and ending up in Egypt. Always a bad idea for God's people to end up in Egypt. We'll think about that in a couple of weeks' time. So Abe has to learn to take God at his word and trust his promises. Because he and his offspring don't have possession of the land yet. And they're not likely to for a while. In Genesis 15, we mentioned earlier, God warns Abraham that for 400 years, his descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. Again, we'll think about that in their experience in Egypt in a few weeks' time. God promises, though, that he will bring those people back in the fourth generation. So it will take a while. It's not going to happen immediately, but God will keep his promise and the land will be given to Abraham and his descendants. But in fact, at the end of Abraham's life, all he owns in Canaan is a burial plot for him and his wife, a field and a cave, and that's it. But that is the point. You see, even more than the buses around here, God's promises work on God's timetable and no one else's. That's why Abraham needs faith, a waiting trust that God will keep his promises when he's good and ready. And this promise of a place for Abraham and his offspring to live in really forms the backbone of the story of Israel through the rest of the Old Testament. From now on, wherever you land in the Old Testament, Israel, Abraham's people, are either in or out of the land. They're trying to enter or maybe get back to it, having had to leave it for one reason or another. Lots of their history is bound up with their geographical location. Are they in the land or not? Now, having studied geography at university, I'm tempted at this moment to say this shows us that geography is clearly the most important subject in the world. Uh, but you can decide that for yourself. But you do always know where you are with the geographer. Let me just say that at this moment. But either way, the worst sanction that God can bring against his people is to send them away from the land, to exile them. And that dynamic is based on the promises God makes here to give the land to Abraham. The promise of land, a place. But again, friends, these promises aren't just ancient history. They're deeply relevant for us today. How, How so? Well, in a sense, as Christians... Abraham's children, we too inherit this promise of a place to live in, just in a much bigger and better way. Because the land of Canaan was only ever a picture. It was a stopping point, not the end point. It's like the models you might have played with and built when you were a child growing up. Maybe you built a little model of a a car, Uh, or an aeroplane, or a famous building or landmark. Now, those models are brilliant. They're great. 
but they're not the real thing, are they? It would be very odd to get into your model plane and expect to end up at your holiday destination. Now, those models are meant to make you long for the real thing, whether that's driving the car or flying the plane or visiting the famous landmark. Well, it's like that with the promise of the land. It was always meant to point beyond itself to something bigger and better, the real thing that it was uh, a signpost to, not a strip of land in the Middle East, but the whole world. See, that's why Jesus says in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, blessed are the meek. Why? For they will inherit the world. Or as Peter says in his second letter, in keeping with God's promise, we believers are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. You see, friends, that is our ultimate inheritance as Abraham's children. A share in God's new creation. Entry on that last day into God's renewed physical world. In fulfilment of the promises God made to Abe all those years ago. And you may look forward to inheriting many things. Maybe one day you'll inherit the classic car. Maybe one day you'll inherit the investment portfolio. Maybe one day you will inherit the family heirloom. Well, here we are promised a great inheritance. A place in God's renewed world where we'll be at peace with him and all who have trusted in Jesus forever. And my sense is this promise is especially sweet in these days. Because here we find a promise that one day our wandering will be over. Our pilgrimage will be at an end. We will be at home, safe and secure forever. Friends, as we walk through these troubling days, let us be encouraged by the promise God made here to bring us safely home to the new creation. He's kept his promise in the past and he will do so on into the future. Our God is a promise keeping God. We see that here with the second aspect of God's promises for Abraham, the promise of a place, a land. So we've seen God promise people. We've seen God promise a place. The third and final aspect of God's promises to Abraham here concern blessing. Concerned blessing. Look down at Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and just see how many times that word bless or blessing, as God promises it to Abraham, comes up. Bless. Bless. You will be a blessing. I will bless you. Bless. 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 It's almost like God is starting over again. Remember how he blessed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they fell. You see, here is blessing to replace cursing. Here is life to replace death. Here is grace to replace judgment. 
See, God will bless Abraham. But not because there's anything special about Abraham. Now, you read the story of his life and he makes some pretty horrendous mistakes. He acts irresponsibly the number of times. He puts his wife, Sarai, at real risk again and again with a cavalier disregard for her welfare and her well-being. God doesn't bless Abraham because Abraham's a good bloke. No, God blesses Abraham because that's the kind of God he is. Notice it is God, we read, who will make Abraham's name great. God will do it. In Genesis 11, you might remember, humanity tries to make a name for themselves, and it leads to ruin. Here, God promises to bless and make Abraham's name great, because he's gracious. And that's what happens in the story. Abraham ends up a wealthy, successful, well-known and respected individual. And this is undoubtedly God's blessing on this man's life. Again and again, God rescues Abraham and comes to his aid when it looks like his numbers are. He is truly blessed by God. But no, Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. Look at verse 2 and 3. You will be a blessing to others. What does that mean? Verse 3. All peoples, not just some, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, through Abraham and his growing family, others are going to be blessed too. And this promise of blessing explains why Israel is often the focus of God's specific care when we read the Old Testament. See, God is committed to his people. He longs to bless them. He gave Israel the law so that they might know how to please him. He promised to dwell among Israel in the tabernacle on their wilderness wanderings, later on in the temple in Jerusalem. He gave Israel the sacrificial system so that they could relate to God and not be destroyed because of their sinfulness and God's holiness. And God looks favourably on his old covenant people because he loves them. They're his. He blesses them. But again, friends, this promise isn't just ancient history. It's relevant for us. Because we today are recipients of this blessing ourselves. See, we have been blessed through Abraham and his offspring. How? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Those, he says, who have faith are Abraham's children. We thought about that earlier on, didn't we? Paul goes on. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, those of us who aren't Jews ethnically, would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, quoting Genesis chapter 12. Did you get that? Paul says this promise to Abe is a gospel promise. 
a promise that through one of Abraham's offspring, the greatest blessing, the blessing of being declared right with God now and forever, would come to all people. See, this is ultimately a promise about Jesus, who through the stage of history comes from Abraham's line. And we've been richly blessed in him. See, now in Jesus, all nations can be blessed. Entry to God's people in Jesus is now open to everyone, regardless of race, class, or nationality, but solely on the basis of faith in Jesus and in the righteousness that he offers. Friends, this is true for us if we're Christians here today. We are dearly loved. We are richly blessed. Our God has poured the greatest blessing imaginable of being at peace with him, in the right with him now and forever into our lives through faith in Jesus. The Jesus who lived and who died and who rose again. This blessing is ours today. We are right with God. If we are Christians. And this blessing can be yours today if you are not yet a Christian. All you need to do is ask Jesus to forgive your sins and share his perfect record of righteousness with God with you. You can experience this blessing today if you haven't yet done so. But of course, if we have been blessed, the logic of these promises is that we are called to be a blessing to others too. Modelling the same kind of generosity, kindness and grace that God has shown to us, to others. Supremely in wanting them to know Jesus in the way that we do and to be blessed by him. Which means they need to hear about him and come under his gracious rule. And the situation we're currently in gives us many, many, many opportunities to be a blessing to others, doesn't it? In practical and spiritual ways. So let's rise to the opportunity. We've been richly blessed. In response, let's set our hearts on being a blessing to others. Here is God's promise of blessing. That's the third aspect of the promise to Abraham. Friends, what amazing promises God makes to Abraham. Promises of people, land and blessing. Promises that express God's covenant commitment, his unshakable loyalty and commitment to his people. And to his plans to renew a broken world. And in response to these promises, what did Abraham do? He trusted God. He had faith. He, he believed. But note the key wasn't the strength and perfection of Abraham's faith. That was up and down. The key was the strength and perfection of the God in whom he trusted. Who was steadfast and secure. And in that, Abraham is a model for us today, friends. So let's take heart from God's promises, 
especially the promises that he's made to us in Jesus in the new covenant in which we live. Let's let our faith look back and see God keeping his word to Abraham so that we can be encouraged that God is trustworthy. Let's let that faith sustain and nourish us now as we live for him. And let's let that faith look forward to the climax of God's true, authoritative and beautiful story. Because on that great day, on that last day, all of God's promises will come true. It's that reality that's glimpsed by the Apostle John in the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. This is what he says there. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. No one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's the promise of God's people being fulfilled ultimately. These people, we read, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're in God's place, the new creation with God forever. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They have received God's rich blessing. It's where the story of the Bible ends. It's where the story of our lives ends too, or rather begins in greater and more wonderful depth than we could ever imagine. So friends, let's be encouraged. Let's be inspired to keep walking by faith until that great day when our faith turns to sight and when we are finally home. May God help us to do just that. Let me pray for us, friends, and then we'll sing in response. But let's bow your heads uh, and let me pray. Father, thank you that you are a promise-making and even more gloriously, a promise-keeping God. Thank you that what you say you will always do because you are true and trustworthy and reliable. Thank you that you commit yourself in covenant to your people fierce loyalty from your side, passionate devotion to your people, calling forth in response their love and loyalty to you. Thank you for the many promises you made to Abraham all those years ago and how those promises give shape to the story of the Old Testament. But thank you for how those promises give shape to our lives today because they find their the glorious fulfillment in all that Jesus is and all that Jesus brings to us in the new covenant. Father, please help us to keep trusting your promises today, to keep walking by faith and not by sight. Confident you will be true to your word. You can be relied on. You've proved it in the past and you'll prove it today. Thank you for being part of your people, a glorious, growing international family. What a privilege to belong in your people. Thank you for the place you promise us of the new creation where we'll finally fully be at home with you and with others forever. Keep us going until that day, we pray. Now, thank you for the blessings we enjoy until then. 
So you've me the great blessing of righteousness, of being at peace with you, right with you through faith in Christ. Help us to celebrate that promise, that blessing, and extend that blessing to others in these days in which we live, we pray. Father, we ask these things. Take us and use us in our weakness, in our frailty, in our uncertainties. Be glorified in our lives. And may we walk in the footsteps of Abraham, the man of faith, because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.